Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey friends, welcome back to the Cardiner's Cardio Oncology Series. This is Abit Goyal. In this episode, we will be tackling one of the most common clinical scenarios that cardio oncologists and their patients face, cancer therapy-related cardiac dysfunction, or CTRCD for short. We are discussing this important topic over not one, but two episodes. One, analyzing the cardiologist's perspective, today's episode with Dr. Herman, and another multidisciplinary episode, learning from the oncologist's perspective with Dr. Susan Dent. This series is co-chaired by Drs. Theodora Donison, Giselle Suero-Abriu, and joining us for today's discussion, Dr. Dinu Belenescu. Dinu is Cardiner's Academy House Faculty for House Jones and Chief Medical Resident at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan. Hey, Dinu. Hi, Amit. Gosh, I've been looking forward to this episode ever since we started planning our cardio-oncology series. It's really excited to be back in the Cardiner's Cardio-Oncology Clinic today with our incredible team. Now, our, our clinic was recently opened with the Cardio-Nurse Cardio-Oncology Series, and I couldn't be happier about today's upcoming appointments. Leading today's discussion is Dr. Anjali Agarwala. Anjali is a third-year internal medicine resident and upcoming chief resident at the University of Pennsylvania and Cardio-Nurse Fellow in House Eindhoven. Hi, everyone. I have some serious side effects preceding tonight's episode on CTRCD. Most notably, excessive excitement, and in typical cardio nerds fashion, it makes my heart flutter. We're truly privileged to have an esteemed guest expert visiting our clinic today. Dr. Jörg Herman is the Director of Cardio-Oncology Clinic at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Herman is also one of the pioneers in cardio-oncology and one of the leading researchers in the field with a focus on cancer therapy-related cardiotoxicity. Dr. Herman, thank you for being with us and for teaching us today. You know, thank you so much for the invitation. I hope I won't throw you into VT or anything more serious, but deeply value the invitation and being among all of you here. Um, Amit Anjali, Dino, and Tio, and looking forward to our little chat. So are we. Dr. Herman, let's start today's discussion with a case. Today's patient in the CardioNerds Cardio Oncology Clinic is Ms. Vinnie Christine. She's a 60-year-old woman currently asymptomatic, with a history of non-obstructive coronary artery disease and paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, who has followed in the CardioNerds General Cardiology Clinic for 20 years and is here for a routine visit. Unfortunately, she reports that a routine mammogram recently came back with concern for a primary breast malignancy, for which she's meeting with an oncologist next week. She is understandably nervous about the impact this potential diagnosis will have on her overall health especially given her cardiac history, and looks to us for guidance regarding how this possible new cancer diagnosis will impact her cardiovascular health. Dr. Herman, as cardiologists, do we need to be concerned about her oncologic diagnosis, or should we merely advise her that her oncologist can take it from here? What would be the next steps in the cardiovascular management of Ms. Christine? Yeah, very good question. So I think as cardiologists, we should always be concerned about all of the issues of our patients, right? To look at the entire person, I think it's very critical. And uh, problems arise if we just have our blinders on and just uh, see beyond just our very focused area. When all this started, and um, it made it into some of the chapters in Brownwald's and even the Brownwald's Companion on Cardio-Oncology, 
I thought it was appropriate to think something futuristic. So I labeled the approach sci-fi and that stands to reason it away, but it stands for subject, context, interaction, and then follow up on interaction or intervention. What that means in essence, to look at both sides in this area, cardiology and oncology, it would be the subject, what's the subject matter we're dealing with from a cardiovascular perspective. So here it would be a patient who has some underlying cardiovascular diseases. What's the context, the oncological context? It's that of a new diagnosis with breast cancer and its potential treatments. So then the intervention would be, is there something that we need to think about how this could play out? And then the last step would be, should we be thinking about something to follow along? And um, would that matter? So those are the elements of the sci-fi approach, and that most commonly comes into place when we actually face complications. But what I think is really important just to remember is this bidirectional play of cardiovascular diseases in malignancies. We've had a couple studies now showing that cancer patients have an increased risk of cardiovascular diseases, even a mortality. We also have the opposite, that we have patients with cardiovascular diseases being at risk to develop some malignancy. And it's very interesting from a biological perspective how this might be. Are there some common um, risk factors? What are other common pathways? And then how do we utilize that information therapeutically? So when we go back to the past where we just said, I mean, there were these two signs for any patient walking into the hospital or into a clinic, cardiology that way, oncology that way, and they would never meet. Nowadays, it shouldn't be like that anymore because there's really way more of an overlap than we've previously realized. For this particular patient, I think we would need to be thinking about the pre-existing cardiovascular diseases, how they could influence the risks of complications as this patient is undergoing cancer therapy. So in a way, we're in a position where oncologists should think, and maybe cardiologists too, of something similar to a PAMI situation, right? Instead of going surgery, these patients are undergoing cancer therapy, but that's not without risk. Dr. Herman, thank you for giving us this amazing overview of how to approach Ms. Christine's care. As cardiologists, we obviously need to be concerned about all issues that our patients face. That must be particularly true for cardio-oncologists who are essentially managing two classes of conditions with systemic impact. It's becoming quite clear that the intersection between cancer and cardiovascular disease is quite broad. Now, with that said, a general cardiologist may not be all that familiar with some of the specifics of the cardiovascular comorbidities related to cancer, cardiovascular toxicities related to cancer therapies, and their specific management. So what is the role of the general cardiologist in the care of a patient like Ms. Christine? How do we fit into this patient's cancer treatment plan? Yeah, I mean, excellent question, right? Because we know that cardio-oncologist services are on the rise. And some of the oncologists, hematologists have defaulted to that kind of subtype of cardiologists already to bounce things off. But there are still a lot of places which do not have that kind of quote-unquote luxury 
of having a dedicated cardio oncologist. And in general, we've never done a study. We've thought about it once, but we haven't done it to prove that a dedicated cardio-oncology approach is superior to a general cardiology approach in terms of how cancer patients are managed and what the outcomes would be. And really what's, I think, needed is just to have some ground knowledge, some basic principles for the general cardiologist. There was this wonderful review by Michael Ewer, Michael Ewer and his son, Stephen Ewer, writing this article, what every cardiologist needs to know, cardio-oncology was in, in Nature Reviews a few years ago. So that was a great outline. And I think that's still true nowadays, that you really need to know some of the very critical elements and basic principles. It's almost basic life support that you can provide that. And if it comes to the advanced life support, <laughs> you pass it on. And so I think education in this area is very important. And um, the role of the cardio-oncologist would be to take it to the next level. As I said, that's the advanced life support, the cardiovascular risk assessment, the optimization, surveillance, monitoring, all this is something maybe for a higher level. But what I would say is, I think the key principle to remember is whenever you see a, a patient with malignancies, think about multiple hits that these patients will sustain. They have their hit from the cancer therapy that's sort of obvious as coming at them, but they also have pre-existing hits maybe from their lifestyle, their environment, their genetic makeup. And all of this could also generate a cardiovascular risk that's maybe not previously recognized. And the combination of this may bring it to surface. And uh, this is a concept that Lee Jones from Memorial Sloan Kettering, an exercise physiologist, and a researcher really brought out for patients with breast cancer. So it would be something very pertinent to Miss Christine and would be thinking for even for the generalists to keep that in mind, that there is just this constellation of potentially multiple hits and where can I help them to mitigate this from a cardiovascular disease perspective? I found to take the best care of Miss Christine, I've got my work cut out for me. After Ms. Christine went home, I cleared my schedule to learn a little bit more about the interplay of oncology and cardiology so that I can be ready to provide her with that best care possible. But I'll be honest, I'm a little overwhelmed by how much there is to know. Dr. Herman, anti-cancer therapies are such a vast and ever-growing field of medicine. Who are the usual suspects involved in CTRCD? Yeah, so CTRCD, it's a mouthful, isn't it? There's actually CTRCVD and so forth, that made it into the 2022 ESC guidelines on cardio-oncology. And um, when we look at this, as far as anti-cancer therapies, you can take a step back and just look at the history, right? We had very few errors. We have the five pillars of cancer treatment nowadays, but we also have the various errors over which these therapies evolved. And the first were the conventional chemotherapeutics. Those are the ones that we all think of, right? The mad scientists or the mad chemist, mad chemist mixing something together in the lab and then testing it out on some animals. And eventually some of these molecules make it into the clinic. These ones, common denominator of all these conventional chemotherapeutics in a way is to inhibit proliferation of highly proliferative cells 
the malignant cells while sparing those with not such a high mitotic rate. This would be the normal cells. So along these lines, we have the big groups of anthracyclines, we have alkylating agents, we have anti-metabolites, and those are the biggies in these areas. And then it was felt that we wouldn't be smart enough with these kind of approaches as it's taking a big shotgun or maybe even a tank to just cut down and kill a rabbit. And so why aren't we a little smarter? And there were physicians, scientists like Dr. Selman, who was looking at these, for instance, women with breast cancer. We just talked about someone, Ms. Christine, who might have an overexpression of a certain growth factor receptor, the human EGF receptor 2, HER2. And um, then the question arose, why aren't we smart enough to just block that kind of proliferation pathway if that's so really crucial to their malignancy and its outcome? He thought the era of these conventional chemotherapeutics would be done. We would be smart targeting these and then spare the normal tissues. This led to the development of HER2-directed therapies, trastuzumab, the antibody, quite an accomplished achievement if you think about it from a sheer pharmaceutical standpoint, because at the end, how do you develop really humanized antibodies? But this was a great achievement. And what was then soon realized as this rolled out was that there is cardiotoxicity. So something he never, ever thought of. In fact, it was quite the opposite, as I said, just happened. We had all of a sudden cardiotoxicity, and it was then realized how important the HER2 receptor and the related signaling pathway is actually for the cardiomyocyte. That's not a proliferating cell by any means, but it is a stress pathway in the cardiomyocytes. And anything that leads to the upregulation of this pathway, for instance, anthracycline exposure, blocking it in that setting is really detrimental. And that was what the seminal study in the New England Journal of Medicine showed was at the turn of the millennium. And that was really a, quite a spark for the entire field. So we had these HER2 inhibitors we have these monoclonal antibodies. There were others in this area too, monoclonal antibodies. We had bevacizumab, right, which Avastin, an anti-VEGF antibody, so to capture all of the VEGF-driven angiogenesis in a tumor bed, recognizing what Judah Fultman had discovered and advocated that just a solid tumor, at least, doesn't grow beyond a certain volume unless there's blood supply to sustain it. Now, those were the monoclonal antibodies, and then soon there was the development to not just block from the outside these receptors, right? If you think of, of for instance, the HER2 receptor we just mentioned, it has the ligand binding domains, that's extracellular, but intracellular, it has a tyrosine kinase domain, actually two of those. And then if they come together, they get autophosphorylated and activated. And that's what initiates the signaling pathway. So these kinase inhibitors were then developed. And that was just an explosion, not only on the pharmaceutical market, but also in terms of targets. And some have called these ones dirty drugs because they're not just targeting the main target they were meant to target, but have a number of off-site effects. So we have on-target effects and off-target effects. And then accordingly, we also see now 
on-target toxicities, if you will, because it's related to that. And then we also see off-target toxicities not intended, more like a target that is then recognized to be of significance. And so that was the area of the targeted therapies that rolled out and came out in the 90s. It was developed, but then the turn of the millennium, 2000 and onwards, this really rolled out. And then we have the area of immune therapies that is just now very recent, right? From 2010 or so forth, when initial experiments and trials and studies were done, to now really an explosion of this. We have CAR T cell therapy and really immune checkpoint inhibitors left and right in oncology and even hematology. And radiation therapy has been there all along and with great improvements, I would say, recognizing the potential for toxicities just related to the exposure. So mitigating exposure, that's something that's been dealt with in a way with radiation therapies, whereas we've seen an increasing spectrum of toxicities with all the rest. And then the fifth pillar, just to add, would be the surgery, right, for cancer patients. So we have these kind of five pillars, but the first three, I think, for us in our discussion in the field have been the most interesting. Wow, Dr. Herman, that was amazing. And what a whirlwind tour through the history and the data and the mechanisms of action of these therapeutics. You can't help but just feel awe in what our oncology colleagues have been able to achieve in developing this extraordinary and rapidly evolving arsenal of therapeutics against cancer. Now, with this arsenal comes also a variety of undesired consequences and adverse effects on the cardiovascular system. And I think for the non-oncologists among us, like myself, this variety is potentially confusing and a bit intimidating. And I think whenever I feel like I'm getting confused, it's helpful to think of big buckets or boxes. Luckily for us, the 2021 International Cardio-Oncology Society, or the ICOS consensus statement, shared by our esteemed guest here, Dr. Herman, outlines five major forms or buckets of CTRCD. Dr. Herman, could you please briefly go over the five major forms of CTRCD? Yeah, sure. I mean, the main aspect, again, I think for the generalist is that to remember there are really just three scenarios that are could be sometimes more rapidly than other times fatal to the cancer patient, right? Cardiomyopathy, heart failure is one. Then vascular toxicities, myocardial infarction, and stroke. And thirdly, it would be arrhythmias and related QTC prolongations. So those are the three big groups to be aware of when it comes to toxicities, what's important, what to remember. And for the purpose of the definitions that, that you mentioned, we have been seeing this for many years that we might not talk the same language. And not only among ourselves in the cardio-oncology field, among cardiologists even, but I think so importantly when it comes to the oncologist, right? I remember I was once in an oncology meeting and uh, the previous speaker was talking about ICD codes. Um, well, he just mentioned ICD in the beginning. And as you can imagine, my association, or I was thinking of ICD the moment I hear that word, was completely different. And um, so when we hear term and terms and terminologies, we might have completely different backgrounds, 
mindsets and then how we go into this. And that can be very important in this particular field. If we, for instance, uh, have the mindset that cardiac dysfunction, some change in LVF is not meaningful, we don't really bother. We're not bothering to check. We don't bother to treat. On the other hand, if we feel like that's the worst thing that could ever happen to a patient, we're just going to check them all the time with whatever we have available and then throw whatever we have available to at them. So those are obviously the extremes of this, but there's also very beyond this practical aspect and for the patient, very important aspect, the point of research. How do you compare studies when they all have different endpoints? When there's, for instance, an LVF decline more than 10%, more than 20% to less than 50%, less than 53%, maybe even just less than 55%. And so it gets very confusing and really leading to an inability to group studies together to compare them and draw any meaningful conclusion. And then last but not least, this is also very important for education as this field has grown and we feel like there really is a need and I appreciate the opportunity tonight to convey this in this type of forum, but there is a general need to educate everyone. But again, if we're speaking different languages, not the same language, it's very difficult to do. And certification examinations have been rolled out by the International Cardio-Oncology Society. And as you can imagine, it would be hard to quiz someone if amongst yourselves, you can't even decide on what the right definition is. So with that in mind, we set out a group of us um, yeah, from various areas within the field, oncologists, hematologists, cardiologists, you name it, to define the most important of these. And when it comes to the most important, besides the three I've mentioned in terms of implication for the patient, it was also by a PubMed surge. When you look at cardiotoxicity, vascular toxicity, et cetera, toxicity or scenario and cancer therapy, what are the big groups that come up? And those are the three I've mentioned, but also myocarditis more recently with the immune therapies and then hypertension. There's quite a wealth of reports out there on hypertension because it is such an important cardiovascular risk factor, if not the most important cardiovascular risk factor in this field. It can be a side effect of cancer therapies. The anti-VEGF therapies are a prime example, but it's also in itself a significant risk factor to aggravate toxicities, even those of enterocyclins. So that's how we came to this. And then within these different realms or domains, we generally try to subdivide into symptomatic and asymptomatic, clinical or subclinical, you can name it as well, and then try to bring in some grading of severity. And this was also in an effort to harmonize all the various definitions, in particular taking into consideration what the oncologists have been using for the clinical trials, the CTCAE um, grid, and that led to this outline. So just briefly, I don't think we need to go through all of these in detail, but so for the most important one, the CTRCD, that was our um, new wording, cancer therapy-related cardiac dysfunction that actually stemmed from this definitions paper. We had for the symptomatic level, the ones meeting 
the clinical criteria for heart failure as a syndrome. And then mild, moderate, severe, or very severe would actually be a reflection of the symptomatic burden and the intensity of therapy required to stabilize to treat the patient. And asymptomatic CTRCD, by and large, really, was still founded in EF dynamics. So an LVF reduction to less than 40% would be severe asymptomatic CTRCD, someone without heart failure symptoms. Moderate would be an LVF of 40 to 49%, so this kind of mid-range category. It could be with a drop in LVF by 10 percentage points or more. Or if it's less than that, it would have to have an abnormality and strain an increase, right, in the GLS value by more than 15% relative percent from baseline or new rising cardiac biomarkers. And then a mild degree of asymptomatic CTRCD would be those with an EF still 50% or higher, but having these changes in global longitudinal strain GLS and or rising biomarkers from baseline. And I think that's an important message too, is that we do need some baseline parameters because not infrequently we have these patients getting started on potentially cardiotoxic, not even potentially cardiotoxic, but proven cardiotoxic medication. And they have no baseline assessment. All of a sudden, they are in heart failure and their ejection fraction is 35%. And then all the bells and whistles are going off and everyone is, the oncologist is wondering, how could this happen? Or maybe it was there already before. We didn't do anything. And so it gets really difficult. And I think that's another important point that for all of these and and the definitions, we want to have a starting point that we can have as a reference and then base our decisions and the multidisciplinary decision-making on as the patient goes through the cancer continuum, potentially with some issues. And do we continue? Do we stop? Do we change therapy? All of that's very difficult if you don't have a foundation to start with. Thank you, Dr. Herman. Ms. Christine's oncologist sends our clinic a message a few weeks later. Unfortunately, results of a biopsy have confirmed a locally advanced HER2 positive breast adenocarcinoma. Her course will likely entail neoadjuvant chemotherapy, followed by mastectomy, with a consideration for postmastectomy radiation therapy. As you mentioned, baseline parameters are important, and so we recommended that Ms. Christine undergo transthoracic echocardiography and lab work, which she diligently completes. Her pretreatment TTE is largely normal, with an ejection fraction of 60%, and her troponin and anti-proBNP were also normal. Anjali, Ms. Christine is clearly dealing with a very serious diagnosis, but all things considered, despite her baseline cardiovascular comorbidities, there aren't any major concerns to starting anti-cancer therapies. Now, Dr. Herman, for a patient like Ms. Christine, what would be some indications that would actually prompt a referral to a cardio-oncology specialist? Yeah, and so referral to a cardio-oncology specialist before the initiation of cancer therapy would be anything more complicated, similar to what you might consider for someone undergoing surgery, this kind of PAMI approach talked about before. If there are some active, uncontrolled cardiovascular disease, that would be that kind of scenario. And we've 
thought about this as well. I mean, are there other not otherwise recognized high-risk scenarios or how could you conceptualize this further? And we had a review in 2014 in the Mayo Clinic proceedings where it proposed that there are cancer therapy-related risk factors and then there are patient-related risk factors and that the combination of these two, that kind of interplay, along with multiple hit theory, would actually generate the ultimate risk. And that was developed further by the Heart Failure Association of the ESC and resulted in what was called risk performers. These are for different classes, groups of cancer therapies. And they also made uh, their way now into the ESC 2022 cardio-oncology guidelines. In fact, it's a central element and a clear-cut recommendation that you should make that risk assessment before therapy, and then depending on the level, those at high or very high risk should preferentially be seen by a cardio-oncologist to set the tone for surveillance measures, preventive strategies. And what's important, though, is that papers have yet to come out to confirm the validity of these risk performers. And it's not so easy to really, with confidence, determine that risk and to put an absolute percentage to a given patient scenario. So that's just something to bear in mind. I mean, we've always had these questions, right? So Miss Christine, for instance, if she were even younger, now she's 60 years old, but if she were to be 30 years old with breast cancer, didn't have any cardiovascular disease, most of us think of her never ever having a chance to develop any cardiac dysfunction with even the most aggressive type of cancer therapies, but that's just not the case. So again and again, we've been surprised, everyone has been surprised at how these patients can still develop cardiomyopathy. And so the question then is, cardio-oncologists, would they have helped preemptively? Maybe not. And it goes back to what we said at some point, the comparison, general cardiologist or cardio-oncologist, where is the difference? I think where some of this comes in clearly, though, is when it deals with the complications. So as Ms. Christine is moving on, I hope she won't develop. I'm eager to hear how her story continues, but let's hope she doesn't develop any complications. But if she does, I think that's definitely time then to bring in a cardio-oncologist and the decision-making at that point, continuation of therapy or cancer therapy or not, and how to deal with that. Yes, let's certainly hope that she does not develop any complications. And thank you for your response, Dr. Herman. It really goes to show that the practice of cardio-oncology very much is a team sport. Now, as our oncologist decides between chemotherapeutic agents, Ms. Christine comes back to us with some concerns. She tells us that her husband has had a long-standing heart failure. Understandably, she is nervous about starting anything that might cause heart failure in her. As we discussed earlier, the anthracyclines and HER2-targeted therapies are two main culprits for patients developing CTRCD and namely cardiomyopathy. Dr. Herman, what are some of the main mechanisms of CTRCD, and specifically cancer therapy-related cardiomyopathy? And given the recent release of the ESC Cardio-Oncology Guidelines, is guidance regarding the management of such cardiomyopathies? Yeah, that's been a long story in a way. And it goes back to the errors of cancer therapeutics uh, that we, we talked about. 
So with the conventional chemotherapeutics, it was what you might call like hardcore injury <laughs> that would evolve. So every sign of it would be there. That was eventually, I mean, at some point labeled type one cardiac type of cancer therapy related cardiotoxicity. And type one became recognized as such as there was a type two that Michael Ewer from MD Anderson and others coined as a very intriguing time, widely accepted term. And that came with the rollout of the HER2 directed therapies, Tristusima. We talked about this as well. Now, the unique aspect of this was when they looked at patients, it was just a series of over 30 patients, they progressed with therapy, they had a drop in the ejection fraction. And then when they stopped the therapy, stopped Tristusimab, they noticed that the LVF, LV ejection fraction, would increase again. And then they said, well, I mean, that's sort of different from what we have seen before with androcyclones. That's different from what they call the type 1, where the impression was that there's always a constant decline. Once it starts, it's never going to stop. It's a relentless disease, this androcyclone cardiotoxicity. But this trastuzumab cardiotoxicity, we have reversibility. And giving the impression that almost all of these patients would recover, it's a benign scenario. That was that kind of type 2 cardiac dysfunction versus type 1 cardiac injury. And the interesting aspect is when you look closely at the figures of that initial approach and document with resistant cardiotoxicity, the ejection fraction, the average for the group, never really went back to what the average was at baseline. So I'm implying that there was at least a certain fraction of patients who had no reversibility. And then there was also the claim that whether you treat these patients or not with cardiovascular medications, beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, and so forth, wouldn't make a difference. It also may not have been as true. Furthermore, recent data, maybe not so recent anymore, but from Morris Long Kettering, group that has a high interest in this, looking at this with even exercise studies again, but also echoes, could show that these patients who developed trastuzumab cardiotoxicity, when you study them years in, they're still not all that normal. And so the impression changed a little bit that it may not be trastuzumab cardiotoxicity, just this benign reversible cardiac dysfunction entity but could be also a little bit more relentless. And then contrary, intracycling cardiotoxicity reports have shown that the ejection fraction response might be more variable over time. It may not necessarily always be this constant downhill course. And so these kind of studies really then led us to change our concept. And we're really not thinking in, in terms of type 1 and type 2 chemotherapy or cancer therapy induced cardiotoxicity anymore. There are different ways of thinking of it. One being the definitions that we talked about, right? The symptomatic, asymptomatic, and the different grading. And that's a very practical approach. The other is a mechanistic approach that you can take. And that is geared just to help with treatment decision, to realize that there is a direct effect of some cancer therapeutics on the cardiomyocytes. Others have a more indirect effect. 
for instance, through the vasculature. And then third type being those cancer therapies that lead to inflammation in the myocardium, the myocarditis. And knowing these differences, it's really critical in that you would treat a cancer therapy associated with myocarditis with immunosuppressive therapies, you know, unless it's toxic myocarditis, that's a different scenario. And then those where there's indirect effects through the coronaries, for instance, you would treat that rather than trying, right, for instance, if you have a patient with critical left main disease, beta blocker and ACE inhibitors just wouldn't do the trick, right? They wouldn't go all the way, but they are the essence if you have a cardiomyopathy process. So it's really in thinking in those terms and approaches you can take when it comes to the management, you can take the mechanistic approach, you can take the clinical practical approach. And the ESC guidelines obviously emphasize the clinical practical approach and they're tightly linked to what we just covered in the definition and then have an outline based on the gravity of the scenario, different treatment recommendations. Dr. Herman, thank you for going over the mechanisms of cancer therapy-induced cardiomyopathy. I remember as a medical student, I was actually studying for the STEP exams, and they taught us about the type 1 and type 2 cardiotoxicity. And then about a year later, I actually had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Ewer at MD Anderson just to learn how the field was evolving and how we're starting to steer away from type 1 and type 2 cardiotoxicity. I think this has to be one of my favorite things about cardio-oncology. We are witnessing the field being written in front of us. We will discuss about the specific differences between anthracycline versus trastuzumab-induced cardiomyopathy in our conversation with Dr. Susan Dent. But in the meantime, Anjali, what are some other updates from the CardioNerds Cardio-Oncology Clinic? I'm glad you asked. While Ms. Christine was undergoing her doxorubicin treatment, we actually ended up seeing a few other patients in the CardioNerds Cardio-Oncology Clinic. Why don't we biopsy those cases together? Our first one is Mr. Al Kelate a 75-year-old man with a history of non-Hodgkin lymphoma on active treatment with RCHOP, which is a combination of a number of agents, including an alkylating agent called cyclophosphamide. How do alkylating agents cause cardiotoxicity, and how do you treat the cardiovascular complications in patients with lymphoid malignancies? Yeah, good question. So cyclophosphamide has been recognized as another cardiotoxic agent. Some studies in childhood cancer survivors bringing that more to the forefront. Most of us had a nice historic example there as far as growing up, reading the books. What was in the books for cyclophosphamide was really more related to high-dose applications in the setting of bone marrow transplantation, conditioning regimens. And in this setting, what was then seen was a hemorrhagic pericarditis. And um, cyclophosphamide is actually quite toxic to endothelial cells. And so the lining of the pericardial sac and even coronary arteries, that's sort of an important aspect is this kind of toxicity to endothelial cells. And how do you treat or manage cardiovascular complications in patients with lymphoid malignancies, such as those undergoing bone marrow transplantation? I think... An important aspect is trying to limit the dose if you can or avoid. I think that's the first step to treatment is, is prevention. And when it comes to those who have no Hodgkin's lymphoma, diffuse large visa lymphoma, and, and the standard here being arch therapy, 
There are now studies that showed that some of the substitution for the anthracycline element in there might actually lead to outcomes that are quite comparable. So if you have elderly patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and they have a number of cardiovascular uh, risk factors, particularly if they have underlying cardiomyopathy, but they really in need of treatment, think about substitution of the anthracycline component, the doxorubicin, with the toposide. And we've done this here, and it has worked out well. And that's, that's definitely, definitely something. And that's also in the guidelines, right? Risk mitigation by reducing exposure is a key element. When you think about other agents, just to mention dexrasozan always comes up, Zinicard. Is this something that you could use? Yeah, you could use it. Will they use it? I don't know. Hematologists, oncologists have been really reserved because it's just got this bad rep that it might not only protect the heart, but protect the cancer cells. So there's been less of an uptick in the breast cancer world, liposomal a formulation of doxorubicin, doxel, has been used. I haven't seen it as much in the hematology world, and neither have I seen a lot of dexrasozan. But what you can discuss with them really is even there is the way of substitution, omission, and if not, maybe dose reduction. And it's all a risk-benefit calculation, obviously. But important to know that if patients develop cardiomyopathy, and do have a relentless course that obviously antagonizes, nullifies any therapeutic effect from what they estimate the anti-cancer therapy will have. So it's a really fine balance. And to calculate that balance, I mentioned earlier, at the beginning, it's really hard to do. We can't really put a percentage on this is the risk of cardiotoxicity versus this is your survival benefit with this therapy for any given patient. It takes some discussion and it takes surveillance. And the higher the risk scenario, though, that you feel intuitively and with these risk performers, the more aggressive you want to be with your follow-up. And I just kind of conclude that you might be alluding to the review article in Blood, how to treat cardiovascular complications in patients with lymphoid malignancies. A general principle that we tried to convey in, in that article, too, which I think is also important for the general cardiologist, is that the number of assessments done in cardio-oncology are really under resting conditions. And um, that intuitively is not the most sensitive way. And so I think it's important to, at times, if you really want to know early on what has happened, it's important to maybe do some exercise testing. Cardiopulmonary exercise testing is very useful getting the peak VO2, that is an early indicator of how the cancer therapy has affected the patient overall. And there are some elements that show much earlier than any, even any strain imaging on an echocardiogram. Although if you look at one parameter on an echo that correlates with a cardiopulmonary exercise testing, the peak VO2, it would be the global longitudinal strain. Again, that's work from Lee Jones at Memorial Sloan Kettering. So just something to bear in mind that for the treatment, prevention is the best medicine, is the best treatment. Then uh, as far as the level of sensitivity, when you look at cardiovascular complications, how much do you want to know? How early do you want to know? Do you be really proactive 
and try to recognize trends early on. And then how do you treat those? Some actually now older data, it's over a decade old already from Daniela Cardinale, where she did these troponin measurements in addition to echo measurements. And it became pretty clear those were high-dose chemotherapies. So not only anthracycline-based, but a great majority of these were. The sooner you recognize, the better the chances of recovery and long-term outcomes. So I think it is important to recognize early and to treat early. And, and last but not least, with the exercise element and exercise studies, exercise in itself is also a very good therapeutic. And there's more and more evidence coming out. It's not easy to do in this population, but I think it's a very good medicine. Hey everyone, it's Teo here. So sorry for the interruption, but I'd like to curbside the cardiolong team and ask for Dr. Herman's advice. I'm seeing Ms. Gemma Sidibin, who's undergoing treatment with gemcitabine for uterine cancer. Gemcitabine, along with 5-fluorouracil, are antimetabolites. Dr. Herman, as I prepare for my visit with her, what toxicities should we look out for with antimetabolite treatment and what are the mechanisms? Yeah, so when we hear the words gemcitabine or if you, the vascular disease belts are ringing. Um, so that's really drugs that we primarily associate with any sorts of coronary vascular disease or even cerebral vascular disease. But by a large part, it's going to be coronary. And then secondarily, you would have impact on the cardiomyocytes. This being said, there are studies too that show that 5-FU may have an effect on the cardiomyocytes similar to androcyclins. But I think for all practical purposes, and as the first step of therapy, we're thinking of these really as being vascular toxic. And 5-FU is the classic drug associated with coronary basal spasm, and vasodilatory therapies are really the essence. Um, there's some others didn't mention to you, it's the taxanes and Platinum drugs, they're also in these categories of vascular toxicities, particularly cisplatin is one of those. So whenever you have a patient here with some chest pain, that shouldn't come as much of a surprise. But then the question really is, what type of vascular toxicity are you dealing with? And there are three prominent or principal presentations, that of coronary vasospasm, that of coronary thrombosis, and that of axillary atherosclerosis. And the Two most common would be vasospasm and thrombosis. Hopefully for this patient, there wouldn't be any of that. And hopefully she wouldn't have a setup for that to begin with some underlying vascular disease. Thank you for that, Dr. Herman. Very glad you brought up vascular toxicity of these agents. I'm going to shamelessly plug the review article on Minoka that we worked on together not too long ago. Clearly a field that needs some more study. Uh, but I do like to bring up a last case here, Ms. Beverly Kizumab, who is a 45-year-old woman with a history of renal cell carcinoma, who is on treatment with a VEGF inhibitor called, you guessed it, Bevacizumab. This targeted therapy inhibits angiogenesis, preventing tumor growth. Dr. Herman, what toxicity should I look out for with Ms. Kizumab? Yeah, so... Rivazizumab, Avastin, one of uh, the blockbuster drugs, bestsellers on the market, really has some prominent on-target effects, not only off-target effects, but we've talked about, about this before, right? On-target, off-target effects. So hypertension 
is actually the most common untargeted fact and doesn't need many patients to treat to have one new diagnosis of hypertension or, or worsening hypertension somewhere with pre-existing. We only need to treat six patients or so to have that. The second most common, and reports differ a little bit, is bleeding, actually. It's not that uncommon either for patients to develop bleeding. It's obviously with malignancies that are close to the surface, right? You could see that with GI malignancies, GU malignancies. And then the next most common category is thrombus formation. It could be both venous thrombosis. It actually is more common than arterial thrombosis. And then last but not least, cardiac dysfunction and, and clinical heart failure. And some of these events can be fatal, but the estimates have been that you actually need to treat over a thousand patients to have one fatal cardiovascular event. So the benefit of these drugs at times is deemed to be greater than the risk. This being said, some of these patients really have noticeable changes and chest pain scenarios are not that uncommon. And you mentioned three principal presentations of vascular toxicities, and you could see all of these in patients on VEGF inhibitors. And this is Bevacizumab, we talked about it, the monoclonal antibody, but there are also a whole slew of TKIs with the VEGF receptor being the target. And so there's really quite a bit to think about when it comes to these patients. And again, I would make the same comment I made previously for the other patient. You just hope that there is not just any pre-existing cardiovascular disease. And the key underlying mechanism we believe here is that it really affects the NO signaling pathways in endothelial cells. Um, so nitric oxide is really the critical molecule for the health of endothelial cells. And that's why you see verification of capillaries. And we feel that is a component to the hypertension, in addition to the reduction of vasodilatation and increased tone maybe, and hypertension related to that. And then with a breakdown of the endothelium, you have the propensity towards thrombosis as well as bleeding. Yeah, so in summary, you have a patient who's undergoing therapies with VEGF inhibitors, such as Bevacizumab. Think about the very fact that a VEGF is very important for the vasculature and that vascular quote-unquote side effects are to be expected and hypertension being the most common, but it can accelerate further. So you want to optimally follow the blood pressure, treat the blood pressure, but also make sure that else in terms of cardiovascular disease is treated and uh, patients are appropriately prepared and followed. And one element to add, when they are on TKIs, don't forget to check the ECG because their QTC prolongation can also be seen. And uh, obviously that can be quite impact impactful. Thank you, Dr. Herman. What a pleasure it was to learn from you tonight. Not only did we see some patients together, but we also talked about the collaboration between the cardiologist and the oncologist, the major types of CTRCD, the main causes of CTRCD and the mechanisms of its toxicity, and pearls from the ESC cardio-oncology guidelines. We do have one last very important question before ending our episode. Dr. Herman, what makes your heart flutter about cardio-oncology? People like you. <laughs> No, it's just to work with many colleagues in this area and to work with them for the patients who are really 
facing what's become known as the two leading causes of death, right? Cardiovascular disease and malignancies. Now imagine they're confronted with both, and we've covered also the interaction of these and, and the, the delicacies. So I think that is very meaningful. I particularly like the mechanistic, the pathophysiology aspects of this, how we learn about diseases. And the example, classic one, was the HER2 story, right? Where we found out what role the HER2 receptor plays in the heart, but also other aspects. And I think this is something that can be taken further than to, you know, one aspect I'll also very much enjoy in this area is the mechanisms and the insight we get into diseases such as cardiovascular diseases. The HER2 receptor story is a classical example. We talked about this. We didn't know really about the role of the HER2 receptor in the heart prior to launching these HER2-directed therapies. But in general, I think it's just very fascinating. What makes my heart flutter about cardio-oncology, it's all of these aspects. It's the research, it's the patient care, and it's the education. And so along these lines, and the last item in particular, I really love this interaction with all of you. And we've been trying to work hard, believe it or not, to prepare the next generation of cardio-oncologists. And uh, they should be better than the first generation, for sure. And I think with programs such as this one, that's how we're going to get there. But there are also fellowship programs available now, as you might know. And I think a very important aspect is, I wouldn't call it crossbreeding, but... (laughs) This kind of exposure of cardiologists to the oncologist and hematologist world, um, and vice versa, the hematologist oncologist uh, being exposed to the cardiology world. I think that's so important in this interaction. So this togetherness is another uh, aspect that makes my heart flutter here. And that's why I really like cardio-oncology, and I hope you do too. Well, somebody bring a sack of amiodarone because I think all of our hearts are fluttering after this answer. Dr. Herman, I think preparing the next generation of cardio-oncologists is such an important item and it's a key mission for our series. Thank you so very much for contributing to that and for joining us tonight. The lessons that you've taught us are absolutely invaluable. Amit, thank you for hosting. Anjali, thank you so much for leading the episode and developing the show notes. Theo, thank you for joining us. We are looking forward to seeing you in the cardio-oncology clinic with our next episode. Stay tuned. Wow. I think it's such an important point. Who let the dogs out, right? This one cannot be contained, I tell you. And he's a mini golden doodle. Oh, that's adorable. No, he's very adorable. He looks very adorable. But even the UPS carrier gets afraid when he hears the bark.